This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm going to give you some background about uh, immunotherapy and skin cancer and head and neck cancer and give you some idea of how that might dovetail with the use of radiation. Um, Radiation, of course, we've been using for years to try to cure cancer in many cases, particularly head and neck cancers, and to try to improve symptoms in other cases. And it has some unique features. You know, radiation may uh, kill some tumor cells and release bits of tumor that the immune system can recognize. And that's an important part of the process of stimulating an immune response. It may also cause inflammation or just the swelling that you might recognize when you've injured yourself. That's part of the process of the immune system becoming active and trying to fight cancer. So uh, just as by the way of background, I'm going to give you some ideas uh, about how immunotherapy works in a couple of uh, major cancers and uh, why we think there might be some places where it dovetails with radiation. Uh, just to be difficult, <laughs> I'm also going to give some information about uh, where uh, medical therapy might uh, be better just by itself, um, and where, where it may have supplanted radiation in some, in some places. So these are my disclosures. And so I, I first wrote this slide because I was talking to a group of research coordinators. And I, I, I said, you know, if I say you're going to die, what does that mean? Um, in, in, especially for young people, like, what, what are you talking about? This is kind of creepy. Why, why are you telling me this? Um, and I think, you know, philosophically, you can say, well, we're all going to die eventually, um, and, you know, we should live our lives as well as we can, and things like that. Um, but when the oncologist says this, sometimes what they really mean is, you know, you have a bad disease, and I don't know how to cure you yet. Um, so that's a message that we can sort of think about, and part of that sort of gives this idea of um, we, we, every cancer maybe has a cure. We, we don't always know what it is yet, and as we learn more, we'll be able to cure more cancers. We'll have a better idea of what to do. And, and, and there may be cures that we don't know about yet. So in general, I try to keep it open-ended. I think about there's always hope. And if we keep searching, we will find the answer. So let's focus on number two here, this idea that there are some cures we don't know about. So this is one of my patients who is also a journalist. And she wrote a number of articles uh, that were published in the Los Angeles Times. Her name is Melinda Welsh. And she gave permission for me to share this part of her story. Uh, she was a woman with metastatic squamous cell carcinoma, had an unknown primary cancer in the neck, had had prior um, chemo radiation. By the time I saw her, she had developed uh, large neck metastases, metastases in the armpit, metastases in the middle of the chest. Um, and we had some conversations about what was going on. And shortly thereafter, she published an article in the LA Times that says, I have terminal cancer. I'm dying in a yearish. And why did she say that? Because I don't like giving time estimates, but I said that's kind of the average for somebody in your situation. And we gave her therapy and she was getting better. And six months later, she wrote an article that said, I have terminal cancers and I know my friends wanted to ask, aren't you dead yet? So clearly she was already, we were beating expectations and she was doing better than she thought. Uh, and then in November, 2017, her op-ed was dying to live long enough to see the end of Trump. So her entire perspective had shifted. She'd gone from somebody who was really trying to come to terms with her own mortality, thinking that she was at the end of life, to somebody who was thinking about other things that maybe some of us, the rest of us, are thinking about when we're not thinking about a life-threatening illness. 
Uh, she had had a PD-1 antibody. It didn't do enough. She had two separate injection therapies. And she had, uh, it, when everything went away except for a large mass in her armpit, she had radiation to that one site. Eventually, that was taken out. And there was no evidence of cancer there. And actually, she's completely free of any evidence of disease today with a combination of immunotherapy and radiation therapy. So immunotherapy was really first shown to be highly effective in melanoma. And to give you some perspective, in 2009, uh, there was nothing that was really effective for melanoma. You uh, could give chemotherapy, which had a 10% response rate and no survival benefit. Or you could give high-dose IL-2, which induced long-term remission in about 5% of patients, 3 to 5%, with a lot of toxicity and a really a lot of problems. And then uh, immunotherapy really came to the forefront with the development of uh, PD-1 antibodies. First was called lambrolizumab, now known as pembrolizumab or Keytruda. And if you look at this waterfall plot, what this shows is the, each patient is represented by one line, and this is how much the tumor changed from baseline. So in some patients, the tumors grew, but in most patients, the tumors got better. And in some patients, they went away entirely using this one drug. And these patients had sustained responses. This is for about a year. This is 52 weeks over here. And many patients had responses that just went on and on. And so we showed that some patients could be in long-term remission. And I can tell you today that many of these patients on this very first trial, on the very first trials of this PD-1 antibody are alive today and seeing me in clinic. Uh, so this is uh, something that can lead to really sustained responses, and really, it, it was really a game changer, going from uh, having very few options to having really options for long-term remission, and in fact, the side effects are pretty mild. So I want to give a little more background about head and neck cancer in particular. In head and neck cancer, it's not quite as easy to get patients into long-term remission using immunotherapy. So head and neck cancer really de describes a large number of tumor types. And there are, uh, the, the, the when we typically we're talking about head and neck cancer, we're usually talking about tumors in the mouth, the oral cavity, in the oropharynx, which is typically the tonsils and the base of tongue, in the hypopharynx and the larynx. Some of these are virally associated. There's other cancers that don't usually fall within that group of tumors, but they're also really head and neck cancers, including tumors of the nasopharynx and tumors of the sinuses, salivary tumors, a variety of skin cancers are seen in the head and neck, and thyroid cancer. So for the purpose of most of this discussion on head and neck cancer, I'm going to be talking about oropharynx, oral cavity, hypopharynx, and larynx. That's where most of the drugs have been tested. I make the joke to say, don't confuse squamous cell carcinoma with squamous cell carcinoma, because what squamous cell carcinoma is, is flat cell cancer, just cancer with flat cells. And that's just what it looks like under a microscope. But in fact, Different squamous cell carcinomas, even within this head and neck grouping, behave differently. I'll give you an example of virally associated oropharynx cancer, which behaves very different from non-virus associated cancer. Squamous cell carcinoma of the skin has triple the remission rate to immunotherapy compared to squamous cell carcinoma of the oral cavity, or oropharynx, hypopharynx, and larynx. So these tumors that look similar, that have the same name, may behave differently. So that's, there's a lot of nuance to it, but I'll give you some broad strokes today. So in general, head and neck cancers, cancer of the oropharynx in particular, is increasing in frequency. It's the number eight most common cancer in men. It doesn't make the list for women, although it's seen in about half as many women, about 12,000 people per year, um, because it's just not one of the top 10, but it's still common in women as well. And this is a, a, a graph showing the incidence of head and neck cancer that occurs uh, that's not related to 
HPV to vi non-virally associated, typically associated with smoking or drinking. It may be sporadic. That incidence has been going down over the years. This is the incidence of head and neck cancer that's associated with HPV, typically in the oropharynx, which has been increasing. So the incidence of smoking and drinking has been going down. The smoking and drinking related cancers have been going down. The incidence of uh, people having sex has not gone down. It still remains popular and HPV associated cancers are going up in frequency. Now that may change with the uh, uptake of the uh, HPV vaccine. So we may see a decrease in incidence in the future, but for now the incidence is going up. And the prognosis associated with virally associated head and neck cancer, virally associated oropharynx cancer is actually better in general than non-virally associated cancer on a stage-by-stage -stage basis. Here I'm using an old staging system because this is a staging system which compares tumors of similar size, the same size primary, the same extent of spread, the same number of lymph nodes involved. So it's good for seeing how the same tumor bulk might do better if it's HPV associated than non-HPV associated. They've changed the staging system uh, so that now you can have a lot bulkier tumor for HPV positive disease and still have stage one because we know it does better. People get better. So if you, if you look at the old staging system, the same amount of tumor, tumor bulk, the same extent of disease, stage one HPV associated tumor had an 88% um, survival rate, long-term survival rate. Uh, and stage 4A, really locally, regionally advanced cancer would have still an 81% survival rate at five years. HPV negative tumors, you see the more extensive disease, would, the survival rate would really go down. So in general, it just sort of underscores that HPV-associated tumors do better for some reason. And that could very well be because they are, have some way of stimulating the immune system. The HPV-associated tumors inherently have some strange-looking features. They have, they're, they're the tumor is caused by a virus which expresses viral proteins, and that may help to stimulate an immune response. Broadly, there are two main... Uh, ways of looking at head and neck cancer. If the cancer is limited to the head and neck, then it can be cured using conventional means. And by that mean, it means by that I mean surgery and radiation, one or the other, depending on the extent of disease and the features. And we've added chemotherapy in some cases to help the radiation work better. Also, if you do surgery and there's high-risk features, you can do chemotherapy or you can do radiation or chemotherapy and radiation to try to increase the odds of cure. So cancer that's restricted to the head and neck can be cured with surgery, radiation, chemoradiation, or some combination thereof. Some of the work that I know Sue has been doing, uh, both at our site and, and internationally, has to do with trying to integrate immunotherapy to further increase the cure rates in patients with local and regional disease. In patients whose cancer has spread elsewhere, it's like melanoma in the bad old days until just recently. You, if you had a tumor in the lung and elsewhere, you would give chemotherapy. And if that didn't work, you'd give more chemotherapy. And if that didn't work, you'd give yet more chemotherapy. And in fact, the median survival in patients receiving chemotherapy or head and neck cancer was 10 months. And there was a high rate of side effects. This is an example of the old chemotherapy regimens, platinum, 5-FU, and cetuximab. The overall response rate, that's the rate of tumors at least getting 30% smaller in total, was about one in three. The survival on average was about 10 months. And this is the rate of what's called grade three and four side effects. Those are side effects that are serious enough in, in cases to either put somebody at risk for a life-threatening infection or to put them in the hospital. It was 80%. That means four out of five people were getting severe side effects. So really it was a difficult situation and there wasn't really a lot of chance for long-term 
remission or long-term cure. You can see this 15 months. Um, there are relatively few people um, who had not had disease progression. And actually, at 24 months, only 20% of patients were still alive. So the immune checkpoint inhibitors, these are, these are drugs that take the brakes off your immune system. So it turns out your immune system sees threats. Every infection you've had, it sees it as a threat, and it goes in and tries to fight it. And there are several steps to that fight. At one point, it will recognize the strange antigen. It'll say, that looks like something that's not normal. That doesn't look like part of me. It looks like something that should, it's, it's, it's foreign, and maybe it's better if I get rid of that. So it learns that that's something that should be, should be, should be attacked. It starts to stimulate immune response and make the right kind of immune cells. Then those immune cells go into the tumor, go into, the, go into where the, the threats are, and uh, they try to attack, if it's a virus-associated cell or a bacterium, they'll go in there and try to attack it. And what happens in cancer, though, is that that initiation step can be shut down and that attacking the, the threat stage can be, be shut down. So the, the immune system will recognize the tumor is strange. It'll start to fight. It'll bring in some immune cells and try to fight the cancer, but the cancer will shut it off at one of two stages. It's that last stage, that late stage, where the PD-1 antibodies do their business. PD, the tumor will express something called PD-L1. The immune cell will have a receptor called PD-1. And when those are engaged, the immune cells are shut down. They become what's called partially exhausted. And so these partially exhausted immune cells will not work. They don't actually uh, fight. So you can see a patient whose tumors are progressing. The cancer is getting worse. And the immune cells are just sitting there doing nothing. So by blocking that off switch, the immune cells are turned on. They can fight and attack the cancer. And they also have a memory. The immune cells have a memory. They can remember how to fight the cancer. And that can put a patient into remission for years. So uh, there were some trials in head and neck cancer comparing immunotherapy to chemotherapy, first in what's called second line. So a patient has already had some chemotherapy, and they could have just gotten more chemotherapy, or they could have gone on the immunotherapy. And uh, this is some of the first studies, and these are curves. This is how long the patients live. This is a percent of patients who started, 100% of patients alive at the beginning, and then uh, they, they, some of them died of disease. And you can see with the standard chemotherapy, by 12 months, you know, 80% of patients had passed away. Uh, and with the immunotherapy, only 40% had. So in general, there was an increase in survival. This is the cancer control. These are, this is what's called progression-free survival. These are the percent of patients whose cancer had not grown, who had neither died nor had their cancer grow. And you can see that most patients still had cancer growth, but it was better with the immunotherapy than without, with, with the chemotherapy. The other thing that's really important for patients with metastatic cancer is how you're feeling. Really, if you think about cancer care, there's only two things that matter, survival and quality of life. Other things are just surrogate markers. If you feel good and you're alive and well and you can expect to stay well, that's really what we're looking for. Um, and so if you look at quality of life, the patients who received chemotherapy in the orange were feeling worse. Their quality of life was, was worse on many measures, whereas the quality of life for the patients receiving immunotherapy actually got better. And part of that could be because we're no longer exposing them to harsh therapy. So immunotherapy had a couple of benefits in head and neck cancer. So there was another study done later on to say, well, do we need to even start with chemotherapy? You know, chemotherapy, you can put a third of patient into remission, and maybe it's a little lower with immunotherapy. But given that it might work for longer, should we just start with the immunotherapy? And this is what's called the Keynote 48 study. 
In the Keynote 48 study, compared three different treatment arms. In one arm, they gave patients immunotherapy alone with pembrolizumab. In the second arm, they gave patients the standard chemotherapy, but instead of giving them cetuximab, which was given in what's called the extreme regimen, that was the old standard of care, they gave them pembrolizumab or Keytruda. And the third arm was the extreme regimen, which they did for comparison. So these three arms would allow us to determine which one really leads to the best outcomes for patients. So the first comparison was taking the pembrolizumab, remember with very mild side effects compared to chemotherapy for most people, and comparing it to the extreme regimen, which was the standard of care, which had a one in three response rate, but a high rate of significant side effects. In that comparison, they looked at two different groups, patients whose tumors were really inflamed, where they were really primed for immune response. So you can look at patients' tumors before they go on treatment, and you can tell how many immune cells are in there, what kind of chemicals are being made. If a tumor looks like it's just ready to go and it just needs the immunotherapy drug to go, that's what it would have a high CPS. So the higher the CPS, the more primed the immune system is in the tumor, the more likely it is to respond to immunotherapy in many situations. So here's a comparison of all the patients enrolled. Every patient had to have at least a CPS of one, which is 1% of cells testing positive for what's called pdl one Basically, it's a very low rate of inflammation, a low rate of immune priming, um, but at least some immune priming. And in those patients, the 12-month um, progression-free survival, the disease control rate was 20% versus 12%, and at 24 months, it was 11 versus 5%. And the survival was also improved, where 30% of people were alive at two years, whereas only 18% were alive if they received the chemotherapy. You'll notice that actually the curves for the progression-free survival, they, they cross because in fact, fewer people respond upfront to immunotherapy than to chemotherapy, but, but the long-term survival is better. And, and in fact, some patients who do not respond to therapy may actually live longer, even though the cancer is not getting smaller, it may slow it down in a meaningful way. When we take those patients who are even more primed to respond on the left, we see the response rates are higher, the remission rates are higher, and the long-term survival is better. So this is an improvement over the standard of care, but I don't think any of us should feel satisfied with this because we're still leaving a lot of patients behind. There's still a lot of things we could do in this situation that perhaps could make the cancer stay in remission for longer. Here's just looking at responses. The overall response rate, 23 versus 36%. That's why the curves for PFS cross but those patients who have responses stay in remission for longer. So these are the patients who responded in the lower left box. And you can see they remain in remission for longer. That curve is higher, the green curve. And the response duration is only four months for extreme. So it's like a paper tiger. You have this thing that looks powerful. You can induce responses right up front. But they just don't last very long. So there's a big difference in the duration of response. When you take um, the patients with the less inflamed tumors, a larger population, you see a very similar story. Those patients who respond stay in remission for much longer using the immunotherapy. And that's in part because the immune system has a memory. It remembers to fight cancer. So just like when you get a vaccination, we're all hoping to get a COVID vaccination sometime soon, perhaps, <laughs> hopefully very soon so we can go about our lives. Um, we get an injection in our arm and that protects us from, our body develops these immune cells, they create memory cells, the memory cells circulate, 
And that injection in our arm will protect us from a virus which is transmitted through aerosol. It spreads throughout our body. Our body remembers that. That's particularly important for metastatic cancer. So if you can get some of the cancer to get better, it'll keep looking for new cancer cells. It'll have that memory and look for cancer cells wherever they are. And I'm going to show you that even includes the brain in some cases. So this is something that could be very powerful and help to keep us safe from cancer for a long time. This is a really good inroad. We may be able to find ways for synergy, ways to make it better and more durable and for more people. So here's the second part of the story, which is side effects. So these patients live longer, but look at the side effects. It's really remarkable. The green ones are the immunotherapy and the red ones are the chemotherapy. These are all these side effects. The incidence of rash was higher with chemo, fatigue, decreased appetite, diarrhea, anemia, nausea, irritation of the mucous membranes. This is one of the chemotherapy drugs causes this. Vomiting, acne, low platelets, all these different things were all much less of an issue with the immunotherapy. Now, there's some bad things that can happen with immunotherapy for sure, but they're just, overall, the, the amount of side effects are less. These high-grade side effects are much, much less with immunotherapy compared to chemotherapy. So in general, it's a good deal. Patients live longer, they feel better, the quality of life is better, they have fewer side effects. The second part of the study is actually important and I think relevant to the radiation discussion. So the way chemotherapy works is by damaging the genes of the tumor. So you give this medicine by vein, it messes up the DNA so much that the cells can't live anymore, they can't survive. So radiation does something similar. The radiation goes through tumors, it damages the genes, and it makes it so the tumor cells can't survive. And so this is a combination not of radiation and immunotherapy, but a combination of chemotherapy and radiation. We're damaging genes and we're giving immunotherapy. So this may help to release some tumor antigens, help, help the body to see bits of tumor, cause some inflammation that might trigger an immune response, and then let the immunotherapy drive that immune response forward. So this, in this case, the chemotherapy, same chemotherapy was given in both arms, but they gave either cetuximab, which is what's called a monoclonal antibody, an EGFR inhibitor, which does not induce a long-term immune response, or the, or, or the immunotherapy. And this is looking at um, the progression-free and overall survival. The orange is the immunotherapy arm. And in general, the disease control was better in the long term with immunotherapy, and the survival was better in the long term with immunotherapy. Here, the median uh, survival was 13 versus 11 months. So it seemed uh, like an improvement overall. And the question is whether this is just additive or whether there's synergy. And that's really an important question. It's something that Sue may be able to address a little bit in her talk, or we can talk about in question and answer. So, so it appears to be better than chemotherapy plus cetuximab, but how much is additive and whether we're really triggering a better immune response still remains to be seen. The overall response rate was very similar. The, the chances of getting a remission were similar in the two, situ two, two treatment arms. Just the response duration was much longer when you had the immunotherapy present. So often we're using this in practice in patients who have very rapidly progressing disease, maybe when the cancer is threatening a major blood vessel, something that's going to cause life-altering problems in the near term uh, because we have that faster effect of the chemotherapy plus the longer effect of the immunotherapy. The problem is when you add the chemotherapy, you don't just give the immunotherapy alone, you also add side effects. So there's a higher rate of all of those side effects we talked about, anemia, nausea, mucosal inflammation, low platelets, vomiting, all of these, these complications that you can see with 
chemotherapy. So if immunotherapy is better than chemotherapy, and chemotherapy and immunotherapy is better than chemotherapy and cetuximab, will this, will this kind of idea, will it help to add immunotherapy to chemoradiation? And that's something that I'll leave to Sue on the, in the broad strokes. But one question is why? And, and to sort of think about that question a little bit, I'll, I want to talk about why does immunotherapy fail? Why does immunotherapy not work in some patients? So I'm going to give you a, an absurd example. And my question is, what's wrong with this cookie? Some of you have talked with me before, I've seen this before, but we have four different cookies here. We have a sugar cookie, a chocolate chip cookie, a raisin cookie, and uh, ramen flavored Oreos. And so there, if you look at the, at the cookies, there's four different possibilities. One is there's nothing wrong with this cookie. Uh, B, I don't recognize this as a cookie. C, the raisins just get in the way. And uh, D, there are no chocolate chips. So the perfect cookie, there's nothing wrong with this cookie. In my humble opinion, is, is, is this chocolate chip cookie. You've got the chocolate chips. You've got the cookie. There's nothing wrong with this. The, I mean, the problem with the sugar cookie is there's no chocolate chips. And, and, um, and, and so it, it's a good cookie. It's fine. But you know, it would be better if there were chocolate chips. The, the problem with the raisin cookies, and if you want to find it's about as much anger as you can possibly find in the internet. Uh, look up raisin cookies. People are angry about <laughs> raisin cookies because, especially chocolate chip raisins, because people feel like the, the, the raisins just get in the way. Now, some of you may not agree, and I know it, in, in our country these days, it's not good to stimulate any controversy on these important subjects. But, um, but the idea, let's just take it from my viewpoint. The raisins stand in the way. So you may have chocolate chips, but the raisins are getting in the way of you enjoying that cookie. And, and, and then there's a possibility that um, you don't recognize this as a cookie at all. There's just a recognition problem, which is true of ramen favorite Oreos. Um, so if you think about the immune system like this, you can say what you want is in the tumor. Let's imagine the cookie is a tumor. This is a tumor. And what you'd like to see is immune cells in the tumor. You'd like to see immune cells that are fighting cells. Those fighting cells represent the chocolate chips. So these are immune cells in the tumor that are there ready to fight. They're good. They're what you want. They're going to help you. They're going to make that better. If you don't have any immune cells, you can't really get an immune response. Even if you give a drug to turn them on, there's no immune cells there. If you have raisins in your cookie, you have other things that are going to get in the way. These are the, like the equivalent of regulatory cells. These cells are immune cells that don't help you to fight cancer. They just uh, keep your body from overreacting. So these immune cells may be all over your body. You don't want them to overreact. And those raisins are, represent those uh, regulatory cells that stand in the way of immune response. So if you were to activate all the fighting cells in the cancer, but left the regulatory cells, those immunologic raisins in there, you would not get an effective immune response. The cancer wouldn't go into remission. And if you have these uh, ramen-flavored Oreos, your, your immune system might say, what the heck is that? I don't even recognize that. I'm not even going to start an immune response. So you need to have recognition. You need to have inflammation bringing in the good immune cells. And you need not to have too many of those regulatory cells in the tumor to get an effective immune response. And so this is just to show this sort of in scientific terms. This is a lot of data here. But what I want to show you is these are, are head and neck cancers in patients who are treated with immune therapy. And what this demonstrates is that you need two things. You need to have inflammation and immune cells. The GEP means gene expression profile. The inflammatory genes are expressed. The immune cells are likely present. And you also have to have a lot of mutations. You have to have a recognizable tumor. So if you look at these patients, who had low inflammatory scores or low mutation loads, they didn't have many responses to immunotherapy. And the patients who had um, recognizable tumors with more mutations, 
who had a lot of inflammation, those were the most likely to respond. So that's like, the, these are the patients who had the cookie with chocolate chips. You know, they had a lot of immune cells, there was, recognized, there was recognition the immune cells were present, and you were able to get an immune response to immunotherapy. So to show this one more time graphically, if you have an antigenic tumor, but there's no immune cells, you give immune, uh, a PD-1 antibody that turns on immune cells, and you get no effect. If you have that chocolate chip cookie where you have uh, fighting immune cells, you give a PD-1 antibody, it turns them on, you get a response against the cancer. If you've got a chocolate chip cookie with raisins in here, the raisins are now red X's, you have immune cells, you turn them on, but the cancer doesn't get better because the regulatory cells sound in the way. So if you had radiation therapy, you might help the immune system to recognize the cancer, to turn it more into a cookie than, than the uh, ramen flavored Oreos. You could recognize it and you may bring in some more immune cells because you're releasing tumor antigens and you're causing inflammation. There could be some synergies there because those are working together. So now I'd like to uh, uh, decrease my chances of getting invited back by talking about times when you maybe don't need radiation. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about skin cancers. And there's a couple of different experiences in skin cancer uh, where uh, radiation was used commonly. And, and, and honestly, there, you really should use it in certain situations. So I'm just giving this to show you where there may be some, some role for immunotherapy, particularly when I'm going to talk about brain metastases. There's still very much a role for particularly stereotactic radiation and treating brain metastases from melanoma. Um, but I just want to be, to be provocative. I'm going to put some information about uh, how immunotherapy may have supplanted radiation in some cases. So talking about melanoma, melanoma of the skin is the fifth most common cancer in men and the seventh most common in women. Um, annually, there have been about 8,000 deaths per year. There's many more worldwide, although that's improving with the advent of new therapeutics. Uh, the incidence has actually uh, uh, gone up. And so when I talk about melanoma, there's different stages of melanoma, and that makes a big difference. If you have a melanoma just like on the arm or, or one part of your body, the primary, the first tumor, you can typically just, if that's all you have, you can typically cure it by taking it out. You just cut it out surgically, and it's absolutely necessary. Um, if the cancer is spread, let's imagine the cancer started on the arm and it spreads to a lymph node in the armpit or to an area along the way to that armpit, that's considered regional melanoma. So you can still take that melanoma out and you can potentially cure it from sur with surgery, but the chance of cure may be substantially lower. So often we think about adding additional medicine after surgery in those cases to try to decrease the chances of recurrence and try to increase the chance of cure. Now, if the cancer is spread elsewhere, anywhere outside this region, even if it's on the skin of the torso or in the liver or in the lung, that's distant metastatic disease. That is not curable with surgery or radiation or any other modality. Uh, typically, you have to use medical therapy. And I want to draw special attention to the idea of brain metastases because for a long time, it was thought that none of our medicines for cancers would be effective against cancer brain metastases because of the blood-brain barrier. So chemotherapy in particular was thought not to really have any effect against brain metastases, and so you'd have to treat them separately if you wanted to get any kind of disease control, and even then the outcomes weren't very good. So I'm gonna talk about two different scenarios. One is in patients who have this in the blue box, who have regional metastases where the cancer is spread to lymph nodes. They could be cured surgically, but we know there's a high chance of the cancer coming back, and so we wanna give extra therapy. The second case I'm going to talk about uh, in the context of radiation is in patients with brain metastases. 
where medical therapy is the mainstay, but we're concerned medical therapy won't do the job because of the blood-brain barrier. So first of all, since I'm gonna talk a little bit of smack about radiation here, I, I wanted to um, also say something negative about surgery. Uh, so it turns out surgery is essential for taking, for, for curing melanoma, especially early stage melanoma. Um, but it, it, it typically they take out that primary melanoma over here, they take out a sentinel lymph node. Let's imagine you couldn't feel a lymph node on exam, but you took out one just to see if there was cancer there and you found cancer. It used to be you would take out all of the lymph nodes in that area. And it turns out that doesn't help at all. It doesn't actually decrease the chance of the cancer coming back. It's not really clinically useful. Maybe you get some prognostic information, but it doesn't decrease the chances of dying of cancer. So surgery in that scenario for the adjuvant therapy to decrease the chance of recurrence doesn't actually help. Doing more than the sentinel lymph node, if a sentinel lymph node positive patient, more surgery doesn't help you. Radiation, it turns out, actually doesn't help either. So it used to be the standard of care to give radiation into the, into the nodal bed, the draining nodal bed. Uh, and, and this is a study that was done a few years ago um, showing uh, observation only versus uh, adjuvant radiotherapy. And in fact, the survival was trending towards being worse with the addition of radiation therapy. And it's really kind of curious, and I'm not sure biologically we understand that fully. It just shows that in this scenario, though, radiation was not helpful and may have actually hurt a little bit. I do not think this reached statistical significance. So I, I, you know, I still, it's sort of an open question, but it's pretty clear it doesn't help. Now contrast that to giving immunotherapy after surgery. If you give pembrolizumab or nivolumab after surgery in patients with stage three melanoma, there was a clear benefit in terms of relapse-free survival. So you can see this is 75% relapse-free survival. It was much higher when you added immunotherapy for one year after surgery and radiation versus just giving observation and just doing standard exams and follow-up. When you compare uh, later generation immunotherapy, Optiva or nivolumab to ipilimumab, there was also a major uh, improvement in relapse-free survival. So both of these shows that there is a role for immunotherapy after surgery for melanoma in stage three melanoma, melanoma that hasn't spread outside the region. And in fact, it is the one mainstay of therapy that's really being used commonly. Now there's some new data suggesting that using more aggressive immunotherapy even before surgery could be helpful in terms of long-term remission. In this particular disease, immunotherapy is so powerful, it may have a lot of application and it may actually supplant some of the standard approaches. Of course, in head and neck cancer, we're nowhere near that. Dr. Yam can cure head and neck cancer of the oropharynx in 80 plus percent case, percent of patients, even with fairly advanced disease using radiation, maybe with a little help from me in medical therapy, uh, I can put patients into remission about 15% of the time. There's a huge difference there. But in melanoma, where you've gotten really good at immunotherapy, there is this possibility of supplanting some of the standard approaches uh, for some of the treatment, although surgery and, and radiation still have their roles in, in, in certain areas. Now, I'm going to talk just briefly again about patients with brain metastases. These are really the most advanced stage of melanoma, the patients who used to die within six months. Uh, they used to have a really horrible prognosis, and that's really improved substantially, just to show you the difference between therapeutic modalities. So to do that, I'm going to show you a presentation um, about whole brain radiation presented at the annual meeting of the American Society for Clinical Oncology in 2019 uh, as a comparison point. So it used to be common for patients uh, who would have um, treatment for between um, uh, one and three brain metastases to use stereotactic radiation, and patients who had more than, than a few brain metastases would have whole brain radiation. So the difference is like... Uh, 
with stereotactic radiation, it's like having a, a magnifying glass. If you have a magnifying glass and you hold it up to the sun, if you put your hand right next to that magnifying glass, it'll feel warm, but you won't have any discomfort at all. If you move it back so your hand's at the focal point, you will burn a hole in your hand. All of that energy is being focused into one spot and really causing an intense ablative energy. And so uh, stereotactic radiation is kind of like that. The beams are coming from all different directions and they only really cause major tissue damage where they come together. And that's a, it's really, really a great technique. And Dr. Beretta is actually a, a practitioner of that. And it's really, I think, a fantastic thing for people because you, you can go in and out typically in a day for brain, brain treatments uh, for small tumors and, uh, and, and you go home and you feel okay because you really just cause damage to the tumors but not to much of the surrounding tissue. Um, and, and you don't have to open up the skull or anything. Uh, so so um, in this case, patients were treated with either surgery or stereotactic radiation to anywhere between one and three brain metastases. And then they were trying to see if adding whole brain radiation would make a difference. Now, whole brain radiation was used for patients with more metastases or, or after focal therapy. It radiates the whole brain equally. You do not get an increase of, of energy where the tumors are uh, it's the same amount of radiation everywhere. And so they showed that that actually did decrease the incidence of new brain metastases, but it actually precipitated neurological decline because you're causing damage to all of those nerve cells by exposing them to radiation. And the survival on observation versus patients with whole brain radiation was just about equivalent. There were a lot more side effects associated with whole brain radiation. It causes severe fatigue when your brain, whole brain's been radiated, nausea, alopecia, dermatitis. And so this is no longer considered to be as highly recommended as it was before. I was on the NCCN panel when we were discussing some of these issues, and there's clearly a role for stereotactic radiation, and there may be some cases in which you'd consider whole brain radiation, but it's not, we don't have the same enthusiasm we had before because it, it doesn't seem to make that much of an improvement in outcomes, and there's a lot of side effects. So a few years uh, ago, we, we did a study looking at combined immunotherapy for melanoma brain metastases. Um, this is in patients who had uh, both symptomatic and asymptomatic brain metastases, and we gave them immunotherapy instead of radiation or surgery. They did not get any, this is not an adjuvant, this is just you know, brain metastases present, we give them immunotherapy and see what happens, do they get better or not. And so the patients uh, were um, treated with a combination of of nivolumab and ipilimumab, that's two different immune checkpoint inhibitors. Um, you have to have measurable brain tumors. You could have had some prior brain, uh, focal brain treatment, but no whole brain radiation. And then you received one drug immunotherapy thereafter. And this is the response rate. If you look at these patients, it looks very similar to what we were seeing for those patients with melanoma elsewhere in the body. Many patients went into deep, deep remission in the brain. This is the intracranial response rate. These tumors were gone in many patients. And, um, and the responses were also sustained. This is the progression-free survival. These are patients who used to live for six months. This is going up to three years, and you can see the cancer remains in remission. This is intracranial in green, extracranial in gray, and global response in purple. And so these patients went into to, to durable remission. And if you look at the survival, it's really quite remarkable. It was over 75% long-term remission with a combination therapy. Again, these are patients who are were supposed to die within six months according to the previous standard of care. I just put the 75% line here, 75% line down there, so you can see the difference in whole brain radiation versus observation. 
Now, this combination immunotherapy is more aggressive. There are more serious side effects. Many can be controlled with corticosteroids. Um, there's a higher rate of great, high grade, uh, grade three and four adverse events. Over, over half of patients get them. And um, there is more um, treatment associated side effects leading to discontinuation. But some of those patients, even after discontinuation, remain in remission. So in summary, immunotherapy has allowed many people with previously incurable cancers to live for years. So it's been a huge boon. The whole idea is obviously very important. Um, but in many cancers, including incurable head and neck squamous cell carcinoma, immunotherapy offers hope, but it doesn't work well for everybody. So there's still a lot of room we have to go to really make these work well for more people. Um, there are several reasons why immunotherapy might not work. Uh, immune, the immune system may not recognize the cancer. Uh, there may be no immune cells in the cancer. It may be the immune cells are off, um, and that's part of the things those, the drugs we're using, uh, what, what they do, they turn the immune cells back on. Or it could be that we have the immunologic raisins, those regulatory cells that, you know, the raisins get in the way of my enjoyment of the cookie, the raisins in the immune system, the regulatory cells may get in the way of immune response. Radiation may help, to, help the immune system to recognize cancer and bring in more immune cells and to cause inflammation, so there may be synergy there. In other cases, immunotherapy may replace radiation or even surgery, um, particularly in melanoma, where there's a really high rate of efficacy for immunotherapy, and it's been shown to be the best adjuvant therapy for resected melanoma, and perhaps for some patients with melanoma brain metastases, although it really does appear to me there's a role for both modalities, particularly focused radiation and immunotherapy in patients. And with that, I'd like to thank my colleagues in the radiation oncology department, uh, Dr. Yam in particular, who I've really enjoyed working with for the past, oh, I spent a lot of years now, um, uh, and, 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 and then uh, our colleague, Jason Chan, and Lauren, who's been involved in, in, in this course and, and, and coordinating the course. Also, my colleague, Hugh Kong, and an entire MedOnc group uh, in Head and Neck, as well as my surgical colleagues and our research team. Uh, special thanks to Don Bowman for helping to put all this together. Hi, everyone, and um, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Um, I'm excited to start where Dr. Alagazi left off, um, and we're going to talk about um, the topic today, which is the um, one-two punch of um, immunotherapy and um, radiation oncology. Um, and my name is Suyam. I'm, the, um, I'm a vice chair and uh, the Jacobs Distinguished Professor of Head and Neck Cancer Radiation Oncology at UCSF. So um, a couple disclosures. Um, I do receive um, funding for some clinical trials from uh, these uh, four companies, and I do receive personal fees as well for book chapters and articles that I've written for um, publishers. So the evolution of treatment in head and neck cancer has um, been gradual over the decades. As you can see here, surgery has been around since gosh, before they started this um, timeline. Um, and radiation therapy actually has been around for quite a long time as well. The first patients were actually treated with therapeutic radiation with the advent of x-rays at the turn of the century. But radiation oncology as a real practice and use for treating cancer on a larger clinical scale came about in the 1940s, um, uh, very much during uh, sort of the post-war period. And chemotherapy, interestingly enough, is a very recent evolution that really arose during the 1960s and 70s. Um, and then finally, we get to the last step of the, what we call now the four-legged stool, 
um, which is targeted therapies and immunotherapies. And I can tell you that I uh, came of age during this time and targeted therapies were considered a major breakthrough in head and neck cancer because we didn't know what was gonna come next, which was immune therapy. Um, and so that is the new revolution in head and neck cancer. So head and neck cancer radiation has really evolved. I'm showing you a picture here from the 1940s of a machine that was used in the Bay Area versus the kind of machine that we use now. And you can see um, it's very obvious that the technical sophistication is at a completely different level um, and the level of precision has um, become very different as well. So here's an example of how we actually used to do the radiation planning just maybe uh, 30 years ago. And in fact, when I came up in my training, uh, which was um, um, a little bit less than that, you can see that we were still using fields like this, which were really drawn with, um, you know, to be honest with you, grease pencils on an x-ray, versus what we do now, which is entirely computer programmed um, and can do very sophisticated things. I'm showing you this picture here because you can see that uh, with the multiple fields rotating all around, as Dr. Al-Ghazi described, giving very low doses of radiation from each separate control point, we're able to make them add up together where they intersect. And so that combination, you know, you have here an example of seven fields, but that's one seventh from each side, but at the intersection of those seven, it will be seven sevenths of the strength um, of the um, energy that's being transmitted to that piece of tissue. And so with this and with these um, varying degrees in time for each of these control points, you can see the darker ones get more time, the lighter ones get less time. We can actually make very intricate shapes going between people's eyes, going around their salivary glands, um, going down the sides of their neck without touching their skin, which is what's happening to this patient. So the basics of treatment for radiation um, in head and neck cancers are that for non-metastatic cancers, we generally will give large-scale radiation, very large areas like what you saw in that picture, with a combination of cisplatin or some other platinum chemotherapy. And that is a tried-and-true regimen since the 1970s that is considered the standard of care. Um, there is another standard of care, which is cetuximab. We talked about targeted therapy coming in later. And cetuximab is an antibody, a monoclonal antibody developed against the epidermal growth factor receptor, which is very common on head and neck cancers. It is generally inferior to cisplatin, but for patients who cannot have cisplatin, we may give them large field radiation with cetuximab instead. So that is the standard of care for non-metastatic cancers. But for recurrent or metastatic head and neck cancers, you heard from Dr. Al-Ghazi about the large array of targeted therapies, chemotherapies, and immunotherapies that can be brought to bear. And what is the role of radiation for these? Well, obviously, we need something that's going to go all around the body and handle the metastatic um, problems in these, in these um, cases. But we can use focused radiation um, to um, tumors that are large or tumors that are causing um, obstruction or pain to the patient where we need to preserve a functional um, issue um, outcome with, by the use of radiation to that specific area. So focused radiation for those people. Um, I'm sad to say that, you know, even in the era of all these wonderful therapies, you can see that as the stage of the cancer goes higher, we do worse and worse. And so there are certainly a very large proportion of head and neck cancer patients, I would say 
um, upwards of 70 or 80% of head and neck cancer patients who are not achieving good outcomes, despite all the wonderful publicity about HPV and how great they do, as you saw with Dr. Algazi, and I'll show you in another minute. But you can see here that for most patients with these very advanced cancers, despite adding surgery and chemotherapy and radiation, some of them have very um, low levels of long-term survival. So how does immune checkpoint therapy feed into this? And I use immune checkpoint therapy specifically. This is one form of immune therapy. So um, you might have heard about the PD-1 or PD-L1 axis therapy. Um, that is what we have at present that is clinically available on a wide scale and has been um, FDA approved for use in head and neck cancers. And now we're trying to explore where do we integrate that with chemotherapy, radiation, and even possibly surgery. So um, we talked about chemo radiation being used for patients who are at the highest risk of having their cancer um, come back. And for those patients, we are testing combinations of chemotherapy and radiation with the third wheel on the date, um, the addition of immunotherapy or checkpoint inhibition. And then there are other special cases where we actually are trying to substitute immune therapy for chemotherapy. You heard the excellent data presented by Dr. Al-Ghazi on quality of life and how immune therapy offers substantial quality of life advantages in metastatic cancer trials that we've seen. So here we're talking about curing people with radiation and immunotherapy instead of radiation and chemotherapy with an eye towards preserving their quality of life. The other situation in which we do this is patients who cannot have chemotherapy. They are ineligible for it because of medical reasons or frailty. And in those patients, immune therapy is an effective and tolerable thing that they could do. And then finally, I did mention the metastatic and recurrent patients where we want to primarily rely on a systemic therapy. And for those patients, we are combining immune therapy with focused forms of radiation that just target one area. And there's some very interesting science around that that we're gonna talk about today. So how does radiation work with immune therapy? This is one particular theory. There is a lot of science around this that is still being worked out. So please don't take this as um, Nobel Prize um, uh, winning information. Um, and it's certainly not original to me. But let me just um, try to give you a schema here to explain what most people think about radiation in this context. So radiation, when it comes in and hits the tumor, like you're seeing with that lightning bolt, um, causes the tumors to go into cell death, a programmed form of cell death known as apoptosis. And this is um, very much related to DNA damage from the radiation that causes the cells to die. As the cells die, they release the proteins from their surface, which are actually tumor antigens. These are the proteins on their surface that identify them as bad actors in our body. And then there are special, what are called antigen presenting cells. These are dendritic cells and macrophages, that's their name, antigen presenting cells. And they come and they munch up the antigens and they grab them and they take them to the lymph nodes. And when they take them to the lymph nodes, the lymph node gets very alarmed because these foreign proteins are now seen. And because those are seen, the lymph node will release T-cells, and you probably heard about T-cells. Dr. Algazi explained how PD-1 and PD-L1 release those T-cells, release the break on those T-cells, so they can jump out of the lymph node and go get the tumor. And now they know where it is because they've seen the antigens that were exposed by the radiation therapy. 
Now, why is this important in many cancers? Because many cancers can escape the immune surveillance in our bodies. Our bodies are constantly looking for foreign antigens to wipe them out um, because they don't belong there. And we probably have little cancers all the time that are being wiped out. But if the cancer can hide, um, they, they actually can develop proteins that signal that I'm okay, I am self. I am not non-self, I am self. And you can see here a little picture of proteins actually touching each other. And let's say that the yellow protein says, oh no, 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 I'm a good guy, I'm self. And then the killer cells will go away. They'll say, oh, okay, well, you know, you said, you told me you were self, you've got, you know, it's like the policeman came up and um, I showed my ID card and the policeman walked away, everything's fine. But that's the tumor cell that was sitting there the whole time. And this is done by very specific mechanisms, which are quite complex. It can be done a number of ways. Either the tumor cells lose the antigens on their surface that identify them as non-self, or they disable those proteins on their surface that identify them as non-self. So they are cloaked. That is actually the scientific word, invisibility cloak. Um, now, on the other hand, on the other picture, you see a photograph here of what is happening when the radiation hits the tumor cells. And so you have mitochondria, which are these little energy um, machines inside of a cell. And when the radiation comes and hits the um, tumor cell, the mitochondria actually release their DNA, um, which is the little red spots that you see actually coming out of the cell there. The blue cells are the nuclei. And it used to be thought that maybe a lot of the antigens that were released uh, were from the surface or from the nuclei but it's now thought that it's possibly some of the mitochondrial DNA that's being released that actually is the, one of the major triggers for the radiation antigen signaling. So here you see that, that those antigens, those little reds are coming out and now the tumor is gonna no longer be cloaked. This is a specific uh, mechanism that is called the sting pathway. And you can see here, we talked about those dendritic cells and macrophage cells that come and munch up the antigen and take it to the lymph node and tell the lymph node what's going on. So here are the dendritic cells and the macrophage cells which are coming in and that sting pathway is activated, um, which is a very complex set of reactions that actually um, assists and um, uh, promulgates that process of antigen uh, present presentation. This is um, a really important um, diagram that comes from one of the most important journals in our specialty in medicine and was written by two major authorities in the field of medicine. And what it's doing here is showing you the stages of immune activation. So you can see here that you need a lot of different things uh, for your immune systems to see the cancer cell. You need these um, cancer cell antigens to be released, right? Like what we just talked about with the radiation. You need them to be presented, which is when the dendritics and macrophages jump in there and grab it and take it to the lymph node. You need the lymph node to be primed and activated. That's what happens when they get to the lymph node. You need the T cells then to come out of the lymph node and go find the tumor um, based on what they know about the antigens. Then you need the T cells, like Dr. Algazi was showing you, to go into that desert area and infiltrate that tumor um, and fill it up with the chocolate chips. So you have the T cells inside the tumor. And then you need the T cells inside the tumor to find the cancer cells, because you know tumors are made up of all kinds of scar and stroma and you know blood vessels and all kinds of things like that. But they need to find the, the actual key tumor cells and kill them. 
Why do we think that radiation therapy and immune therapy could work together on a clinical basis? This is a very important paper, which I'm going to summarize for you, that gave us some of the basis where we thought, wow, maybe we could use radiation to actually go and prime those lymph nodes, and then they, the T cells would be released by the immune therapy and everything would work, um, you know, like we were supposed to. Um, so this is a study um, just showing you in mice um, that these patients were either given the um, an anti-PD-1, PD1 in this case, was being used. So, uh, uh, you know, an immune checkpoint inhibitor, like we've been talking about, like what's clinically available now, um, or they were given radiation. So they were either given the, the immune therapy, the radiation therapy, or they were given nothing, which is the black line, or they were given both together, which is the purple line. And you can see it's very clear that the radiation and the immune therapy together had a much greater effect on these animals than either of them alone or nothing. This is an early phase clinical study that actually tested that principle in humans. Um, it was run by a cooperative group, and as you see, um, those four categories like Dr. Al-Ghazi described are there, oral cavity, larynx, oropharynx, and hypopharynx. And in this study, what they proved, because it was just a phase one safety study, was that radiation, cisplatin, remember our chemo, nivolumab, PD-1 inhibition, or radiation, cetuximab, remember our targeted EGFR therapy, and nivolumab, or radiation and nivolumab were all safe and tolerated by the patients, okay? So this was the first step towards saying patients can actually get chemoradiation with immunotherapy and be okay. They can make it through that treatment. It's not too much. And so that has led now to the development of two um, large-scale international studies. One is testing abelumab, which is a PD-L1 inhibitor with chemoradiation, and one is testing pembrolizumab, which is a PD-1 inhibitor with chemoradiation. The abelumab results have been released um, in early form, and they were not promising, unfortunately. Many people are curious as to whether that's because abelumab is a PD-L1 inhibitor, and maybe the response that we need is actually a PD-1 inhibitor. Maybe that is where the data lies. So everyone is very... Um, anxious, waiting for the pembrolizumab study to report out on these early results. If it reports as a positive study showing a benefit of adding the um, pembrolizumab to chemoradiation, it will change the standard of care for um, a vast uh, array of head and neck cancer patients in this country. This is a study for patients who've had a surgery. So for many of the head and neck subsites um, that are not in the soft parts of the mouth and throat, um, we may need to do a surgery. And if we have to do a surgery to get those out first, um, then we may need to give chemo radiation afterwards to the ones where the surgery could not remove everything or where the pathologic features were extremely concerning. Those patients are at very high risk to have their disease come back. And so analogously, this study was looking at the safety of adding pembrolizumab to the chemo radiation after the surgery, and it was found to be safe. The study has not yet been published, but will soon come out. Now, why could patients maybe not get any chemotherapy? There's a lot of reasons. Cisplatin, which is a key chemotherapy for head and neck cancer, um, cannot be given to patients who have poor kidney function or who have a lot of hearing loss because it does affect your high-level high hearing, or maybe they have an inability to tolerate the nausea and the resultant dehydration that's frequent with um, cisplatin, which is the most emetogenic drug we know um, in medicine. Um, or they are very elderly and they just have generally low medical reserve and it would, it would be too hard of a treatment. So for those patients, um, there are numerous studies around the world now looking at whether we can replace chemotherapy, platinum, 
um, with immune therapy. And those studies are developing at all different um, kinds of um, levels and phases, mostly phase one and two at this point. But as you see here, this study, which is HN004, which we are supporting at UCSF, is a study for patients who cannot have cisplatin, but they do need um, enhancement of their radiation therapy. And they receive either cetuximab, which is that targeted EGFR therapy we talked about, which is considered the standard of care in the absence of platinum, or they can have darvalumab, which is an immune therapy. And so we are going to compare those in a phase three setting and decide whether we should um, replace cetuximab permanently with immune therapy instead with radiation. The other situation we talked about was patients who have lower risk disease. So the burden of HPV disease is increasing in this country, as Dr. Algazi talked to you about, and we are worried that perhaps giving these patients chemotherapy and radiation may be too intensive for a disease that is so exquisitely responsive to radiation therapy. You can see here that HPV-related diseases are um, very common in the United States, and that particularly the blue color, which is oropharynx cancers, where HPV disease is very prevalent. You can see in men, it's like a huge proportion of the blue is, is um, oropharynx for the men. And even in the women, it's very competitive um, to the other cancers. And in fact, number for number in the total population, oropharynx cancers are now the number one HPV-driven cancer in this country, more than cervix cancer. Why is HPV um, so important? because we know from um, analysis of a very large study about 10 years ago that patients who are non-smokers and have HPV-driven cancers, not smoking-driven, but virally-driven, have survivals that are 93% over the long term, versus those who are smokers have, um, where it's smoking-driven, have survivals that are more like 46% over the long term. And then patients who are kind of in the middle have an intermediate risk. But for those patients who are at very low risk, um, it's questionable um, whether we really must give these very intense chemoradiation regimens. And that's a question that is um, very pertinent because many of them are young. Um, and you can see here on the other side of the screen that even after progression, even if patients have metastases, even if patients have a surgery to address their metastases, even if patients can't have a surgery to address their metastases, if they have HPV-driven disease, they live longer. These patients have long survival. This is a study that I am the international principal investigator of, which we are running across um, multiple sites through internationally through the Energy Oncology Cooperative Group. Um, and as you can see here, this is for um, HPV-driven cancers in non-smokers. Um, and what we're doing is a phase two, three randomization. We're testing the standard of care, which is 70 grams cisplatin against a reduced dose of radiation with cisplatin. And against, this is the um, very innovative part um, of the study, reduced dose radiation with nivolumab, which is the immune therapy. Um, and eventually in the phase three, um, one or both of those experimental arms will be going up against the standard of care with the hope that we may be able to reduce intensity in these young patients who have very responsive tumors and long survival. I'm going to switch for the um, last part of the talk um, to just talk about um, briefly um, oligometastatic disease. So um, there is something known as the spectrum theory, which became very well known um, in the field of breast cancer. And there are a lot of different kinds of cancers. I like to tell my patients, cancers have different personalities. Um, they all have different mutations that make them unique, just like people. 
So some cancers remain local and they never metastasize. And some cancers are really widely metastatic right away and they never stop doing that. And then some cancers exhibit an intermediate behavior with what's called clonal evolution. So that means various clones make daughter clones and other daughter clones and they, they produce progeny of metastases. The oligometastatic state was defined at the University of Chicago um, initially, and what they claimed was that there could be a situation with a limited number of metastases. Um, traditionally, we have thought this to be less than three, but it could be up to five, where the disease was observed never to progress past that. And so in theory, if you knocked out those little deposits that were just um, metastatic but not progressing, this patient could be cured. So here is a schema just showing you what I mean by clonal evolution, or what's also known as the cancer phylogenetic tree. Phylogenetic tree. And you see here that you start out with, you know, let's say like um, one metastasis, okay, one, one metastatic deposit. And it has two daughters that um, it makes, which are slightly different in their um, evolution, their clonal evolution. And then those also have daughters, right? So the key issue here is when do you intervene to try to knock out those clonal metastases? And so let's just take as, um, you know, a thought experiment, if you were able to identify those three metastases before they were able to go on and make more daughters, what if you knocked out those three with locally ablative therapy, either surgery or radiation? It can be a knife or it can be a machine. But let's say that you ablate all three of those before they can make daughters um, or sons. And um, theoretically, that patient's disease would be stopped. So this is a study that we are running now um, within the RTOG Foundation. It is a study um, testing whether stereotactic radiation therapy um, to a recurrent or metastatic site, our second primary site, um, can prevent uh, the emergence of further um, disease or whether the addition of pembrolizumab to that stereotactic treatment will actually produce additional benefit. So the idea here is to try to figure out um, is the radiation by itself enough, ablative radiation, or um, can't, do we need the immune therapy to combine with it? And why is that such a pressing question? Because a lot of the radiation questions are not totally worked out. We don't know in combination with immune therapy how much radiation we need to give, what dosages we should give for each treatment, whether we should time the radiation before, during, or after the immune therapy, how many of the sites, do we need to do all three of the sites or just one of the sites, or how large should those sites be allowed to be? Because if they're very large, you're gonna cause a lot of damage, maybe too much. So a lot of these questions are very, very new and difficult. And so these kind of studies are necessary to figure out how to combine them. I'm gonna do something fun now and show you an actual story. This is my patient who had um, a base of tongue squamous cell carcinoma. She was treated with 70 gray and cisplatin therapy. Um, she did very well, um, but unfortunately one of her lymph nodes did not fully resolve and she had to have a neck dissection to take that out. And then she was doing very well for about um, uh, over a year and a half, almost two years. And she had a lung nodule in her right upper lobe that was very small, four millimeters, but it grew to nine millimeters on her next scan. And we had to make a decision whether to put her on um, chemo or immune therapy or whether to treat this as oligometastatic disease and go for it. Now, mind you, you know, this was growing very slowly and she had no other sites. The rest of her lungs were pristine. 
So I gave her stereotactic radiation therapy to that site, and she is now alive at four years later with no disease. True oligometastasis. One other concept besides the oligometastatic state is the abscopal effect. This is like the unicorn of immunotherapy and radiation oncology. We believe that sometimes in rare cases, when you irradiate just one big site and you get that huge punch of antigen release, like I was showing you with all the antigens, you know, breaking up and flying all over the place to the antigen presenting cells, um, the radiation may prime the immune system to recognize um, those tumor cells as targets and go get them and wipe them out from the rest of the body. So here is a case report that um, my resident actually published with me. And you can see this is a patient, we're switching into skin cancers now. A Merkel cell carcinoma is a rare type of skin cancer that's known to be very immunologically driven. And if you look at this patient, you can see that original pre-radiation PET scan with a lot of disease all through the chest. All those white bright spots were diseased. And what we did um, was we um, gave radiation to all those sites in the um, chest because we were concerned that he was going to block his airway um, and we wanted to make sure that was okay. But I want to point out the liver down below. The patient also had a lymph node that was sitting right next to the liver sort of tucked up underneath it in the upper abdomen. We did not radiate that site, okay? But after we radiated the chest, um, the, the upper abdominal node disappeared. Now, it's important to know that the patient was on pembrolizumab while this was going on. He hadn't actually responded to the pembrolizumab, but after we radiated him, he responded to the pembrolizumab. So this is a true example of tumor antigen release from the immense amount that we radiated in his chest, and then abscopal effect at a distant site with the immune cells going and wiping out everything else in his body. And he actually had a CR, a uh, complete response at four months with no disease in his body and remained without disease at our last follow-up a year later. So that's like the miracle. Um, and I'm just gonna point out again, this is um, unusual to see. Merkel cell is very, very highly immunogenic, similar to melanoma in some ways. So that is why you might see something like that in Merkel cell. This is a study that was running in the Alliance. Unfortunately, I believe it's um, closed due to poor accrual, but um, it was testing the addition of radiation to um, a regimen of pembrolizumab, very similar um, in Merkel cell carcinoma. So very much along the principles of what I just showed you with that case. And then I'm gonna finish up here with another skin cancer, which is cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. So another type of skin cancer is squamous cell carcinoma that doesn't occur in the head and neck, but occurs in the skin. And one of the unique things about these very aggressive skin cancers is that they have a very, very high um, tumor mutation burden, um, which some people would in simple um, simpleton language kind of equate to antigen load, right? A lot of um, various kinds of foreign things um, and mutations. And one of the issues here is that it's very difficult to give these patients chemo or targeted therapy because they have so many mutations, they just work around it. You know, it's like, oh, I'll just switch to my, you know, my other personality today. So it doesn't work very well on them. Um, and that's been a real challenge. But we have a study at UCSF that Dr. Algazi and I are supporting, which is a study for patients who have surgery for their skin cancer. And then the standard is to have radiation afterwards. But our question in the study is whether PD-1 inhibition, immune therapy, very similar to nivolumab, pembrolizumab, the other ones we've talked about today, this one is called simiplumab, 
whether the semiplumab added to the radiation can increase these patients' outcomes. Um, so again, looking at a combination um, in skin cancer um, that is refractory to chemotherapy and targeted therapy. There are very many unanswered questions about the combination of immune therapy and radiation therapy that are very complex. Um, and I don't expect that these will be worked out in the next five or even 10 years. Um, I expect they will be ongoing probably for my lifetime. Um, but they are very important questions. And as we get better at them, our improved um, uh, combinations of radiation immune therapy will become stronger and more sophisticated. So one question is, does adding immune therapy to chemo radiation help people? We looked at several studies where we're testing that. Can immune therapy replace chemotherapy to combine with radiation? We looked at several studies that are trying that. What is the optimal um, dose of radiation or the fraction size, meaning how much radiation we give with each treatment, field size for radiation, what's optimal to combine with immune therapy? And then the question that has not even really been started to be answered, how do we investigate the sequencing of radiation and immune therapy or radiation and chemotherapy and immune therapy? Um, that, that all remains to be seen. Um, like Dr. Al-Ghazi, I wish to thank our really wonderful head and neck cancer team at UCSF, particularly the radiation oncology staff that helps me take care of patients every day, um, the medical oncology and surgical oncology colleagues that I've been so privileged to work with over the course of my career, um, as well as our supporting um, dermatology, um, pathology, um, dental oncology, cancer immunotherapy, um, laryngology, imaging, and um, associated um, colleagues at San Francisco General and the uh, VA, and also our wonderful clinical research team, which is um, headed by Dr. Al-Ghazi and myself that sustains our um, ongoing commitment to making outcomes better for these patients through um, investigation. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Yam and Dr. Al-Ghazi. That was such a great presentation. We had a few um, questions through the Q&A box that um, Dr. Algazi answered, uh, typed the answers, but I was wondering if you wouldn't mind addressing them uh, out loud for our recording um, for later and for the rest of the audience. Thank you. Sure, I think the first one, and you can chime in, Sue, to that. But so what time frame, what's the time frame over which the immune system, over which the immune system responds to tumor cells that went through apoptosis during RT how long does it take for RT after RT for tumors to tumor cells to present uh, the cancer antigen? Uh, and how long uh, is the immune response activation after RT days, weeks, months, years? Yeah, I mean, the answer is um, fairly immediate, actually, but it's a great question because the process of apoptosis, um, it sounds like someone might know about this a little bit, the process of apoptosis can actually take um, some time. And, I, and you know, I, I simplified things a little bit. Apoptosis is not the only way that um, these cells can die. There are other forms of um, cell death like um, autophagy, um, necrosis. But the point is that um, the immediate response happens within that day. It's, it's nearly immediately and continues over a few days, which is one of the attractions of um, short course radiation because maybe to stimulate the antigenic response, you actually only need you know, a, a, a short, fast burst of radiation therapy, which is very contrary to the way that traditional treatment is done um, um, in head and neck cancer patients today. And, you know, I can uh, have a long discourse here about why we have to do, you know, seven weeks of radiation therapy. It's because we can't give huge short bursts to, you know, half your head. Um, we can only do that to very small areas safely, but that does seem to stimulate the best antigenic response. 
But you, you, you can see the immune cells. There's been studies showing you biopsy, you see a lot of immune cells. Within two weeks, you see more CD8 cells in there. There's the right, right, right. Cells. And then also that the regulatory cells may actually play a role. All those things we were talking about. I, I saw a really interesting study a little while ago where they depleted the, 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 the raisins. They got rid of the raisins by giving what's called the CD25 antibody, and that actually made radiation work better. Yeah, actually, two weeks is a great number. So if you're talking about the total process and, you know, in, in terms of priming and um, T cell release, yes, we actually, um, believe it or not, it's a complicated and long story, but in designing HN005, um, one of our colleagues, Matt Spitzer, <laughs> counseled me on my, on my cell phone how to do this. And um, he thought two weeks was really important to cover with continued um, immunotherapy stimulation. Yeah, it's, and I think that I honestly think that immune, the immune piece is really important for how this works because we have patients with with these. Each tumor is very unique, and you have patients with like huge amounts of local regional disease, especially HPV associated tumors. How in the world does that not metastasize and kill people? And how does radiation have an eighty percent cure rate? There has to be a really strong immune component. So I think these are really important questions, and I think that. Um, the, the, the timing is pretty quick. Uh, the other thing I wanted to add, though, is that there's, there's actually the curative dose of radiation may not be exactly the same as the most immunogenic dose of radiation. There have been papers showing that if you vary radiation schedules, if you go a little lower and, 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 or more frequent, you'll get the killing of the tumor without any immune effect, global immune effect. It's only a very specific dose of radiation that gives an optimal immune effect and this abscopal effect, this regression of untreated lesions. So there may be actually a relatively narrow window where you're actually stimulating a lot of antigen release where you're not you know, killing the immune cells or causing some other uh, untoward immunologic consequence. And so one challenge is to try to make something clinically relevant uh, that actually does the job immunologically. Yeah, there's been a lot of interest in how we can manipulate not only the radiation dosage, but the radiation um, volume. Um, because as Dr. Algazi, I think the point, one of the points he's making here is that you want to stimulate the um, antigenic release, um, but you don't want to dampen the immune response. And so, um, you know, right now in um, head and neck radiation oncology, some of the studies we're looking at are, you know, specifically not treating parts of the neck or specifically um, omitting certain areas um, you know, that we think are very safe um, to, to be able to preserve those lymph nodes so that they can uh, receive you know, our messages um, from the, the antigen presenting cells. So it's, you know, it's, um, but this is all you know, so nascent and really complicated because um, as Dr. Algazi pointed out, um, immune therapy was really established in melanoma and then um, and lung cancer, and then head and neck cancer in the metastatic setting first, as is very traditional in oncology. And so for it to be coming in now to the you know, vast majority of patients who um, are presenting for cure with radiation or surgery or some combination, um, this is very, very new for us to have um, access to those kind of medicines. And then I guess there was a question about is cisplatinum uh, that is used uh, or is it, one, uh, is it one of the drugs that are better tolerated in many patients like carboplatin, oxaloplatin, or newer platinum drugs? Um, to which I said it's cisplatin. <laughs> it's, it's, it, the thing is that we, we, get, we get tied to standards a lot of times in oncology. And so we know something works. And Sue will tell you I'm desperate to replace cisplatin. I, I don't love giving it as a drug except that it works. 
uh, and especially the very high doses are really considered the gold standard and people get neuropathy, hearing loss, kidney problems. There's all sorts of things you can get with that. It makes it a lot difficult for difficult for patients. And a lot of times we're faced with this idea, are we pursuing really curative therapy, the most aggressive curative therapy, or are we, you know, are we not? And so we end up giving drugs that are harsher. Um, but if we can prove that something else works better, then we should do it. Uh, in patients with metastatic cancer, I rarely give cisplatin because I, it really the quality of life becomes so important and we're not expecting to uh, cure most patients. We want to make sure the quality of life is good, that life is longer. And if we can get long-term remission with immunotherapy, of course, we're going to do that. I will say this, you know, um, toxicity is a real, since we have a few minutes, I mean, toxicity is a real concern in, in head and neck cancer treatments. Um, you know, it is a very, very, um, what we call high value real estate, you know, an area with a lot of um, human functions, you know, speaking, eating, um, breathing, you know, all, all these functions, you know, vision, hearing, I mean, they're all up there in the same place. And so we're very um, conscious of that when we're designing radiation or when we're deciding what kind of surgery is even feasible. Um, you know, the addition of um, chemotherapy, you know, is really that shot at cure. Um, and we get into questions of toxicity in only in patients where we feel like the chance of cure is assured. But unfortunately, you know, for most patients with head and neck cancer, the chance of cure is, is not at all assured. I would say 80% of our patient population, you know, is really looking at um, formidable odds. And so in those patients, if there's any way to get them chemotherapy, because it is the proven standard, you know, we have to try to get them through it with the best support we can. Um, in patients where um, their chance of cure is very high, such as we talked about the non-smoking HPV patients, um, we have a little bit of a luxury to be able to say, okay, like, can we um, start thinking about toxicity and quality of life um, in equal balance with cure? Um, and so that's really where, you know, we're hoping to um, see if the immunotherapy could come in. But in these other patients and the patients where the chance of cure is less assured, um, we're really talking about using immune therapy to escalate even further um, to really um, try to improve the outcomes better. Um, and the reason immune therapy is so appealing is because it has low toxicity. So we can add that to chemo radiation. And as I showed you in those studies, it is tolerable. Um, you know, because adding more chemo, more targeted therapy is, is questionably tolerable, but immune therapy appears to be tolerable. I think uh, the future, maybe the future is giving, you know, an immunotherapy, CD25 antibody, if you can get one, and giving a lower dose of radiation. So all of a sudden, the difference between 70 gray and 60 gray is actually a lot in terms of toxicity. That's just, I'm taking, I'm stealing Sue's thunder because that's her big point. But the idea is if you could find just the right combination. Maybe you could use non-toxic medicines, lower doses of radiation, you get the same outcome. But really the onus is on us to prove that that works because the standard cures a lot of people. I mean, that's the thing. We don't want to lose that. Right. I mean, that is the theory behind HN005, where we're testing 70 versus 60 gray uh, with both platinum and nivolumab. Um, and, you know, we'll have to see what happens. I just want to add one other thing, which is that there are other versions of platinum. There's netoplatin, oxaliplatin, um, carboplatin. Um, I think, um, you know, Dr. Algazi is probably more qualified to um, address this than I am. But uh, unfortunately, none of those are proven to be the standard of care. And um, cisplatin in every study it's been in um, up against something else in combination with radiation has won. Um, so we... we um, 
you know, uh, I, I still remember a presentation on cisplatin and cetuximab where the speaker was like, you know, um, you know, same old, same old, you know, <laughs> um, because, because uh, uh, cisplatin is so incredibly effective with radiation. Um, so like Dr. Algazi is saying, it's, it's a very difficult balance trying to figure out where we can, um, well, where we need to make it better and work better and where we can potentially substitute it. Those, those are really complicated questions. Well, thank, thank you so much for listening to a bunch of doctors at 8 p.m. <laughs> That's dedication. Thanks for joining. Yeah. Please you, never, you never know if anybody's laughing at the jokes. That's the problem. You know? <laughs> I'm laughing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and Dr. Algazi and I are always happy to talk about head and neck cancer. So, you know, please, please reach out to us if you have other questions or ideas. And people who have any specific uh, patient-related issues, feel free to reach out offline. Thank you. Thank you to, um, I want to thank Dr. Beretta from my own department um, and Don Bowman, who um, did a wonderful job putting the session together and coordinating all the invitations. Agreed. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.